Amen. Thank you, Jesse, for the prayer and the optimism. I love that he thinks preachings between 45 and 50 minutes. I like to think that too. Doesn't al- <laughs> doesn't always happen. All right. So uh, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. And continuing on in our series in Mark, and this week, this passage this morning, we're going to see the low points of humanity on display. The three main actions in these, these interchanges and the, the themes that are present are betraying, seizing, and fleeing. None of these bode well for everyone except for Jesus. This is not a time where we look to positive examples, um, but in these, there's going to be much for us to learn. But what we're going to see this morning, we're going to make both uses of the word alone. But in the text, we're going to see that Jesus stands alone against his betrayer. He stands alone in this unlawful seizure by the authorities. And then he stands alone after the desertion by his disciples. And so we're going to make some comments along the way in the text, but we are going to land. And if you notice by your outlines in front of you, we're going to spend a good amount of time in application and what this passage has to teach us about who Christ is and what he has done and what that means for us. So I'm going to jump right in and read our text, picking up in verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, if you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning only because Christ came before us. You were with him in the garden, in the betrayal, in the trial. You were with him in the resurrection and ascension and glorification. And because of him, you're with us now. Pray that you Remind us through your spirit this morning of what we have in Christ, that you convict us of our own sin and weakness and cowardice, that you exhort us to encouragement, to stand boldly on our rock, the rock of ages, our Savior. We need this exhortation, we need this reminder because, as we sang this morning, we are prone to to wander. We are prone to leave the one we love, the one who loves us. We are so fickle. We are so fearful. 
We are just like the disciples. We talk a big game, but when it comes down to it, we cower in our own strength. Lord, I pray that you strengthen your people this morning, that we examine ourselves according to your word, that you build us up in the power of your spirit in the name of your son, that we may stand firm in Jesus Christ, that we may trust in him alone, proclaim him alone, and be his ambassadors until he returns, that you may be glorified in everything that we say and do in this building and as we leave this building throughout the week, that you would use us to tell of the good news of our salvation. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so as we did a couple weeks ago, I want to use John as a supplement to Mark. So before we jump into our text, turn to John, and we're going to pick up where we were a couple weeks ago. So John chapter 18. If you were with us, uh, we looked at the, all of the material that John includes that the synoptic Matthew, Mark, and Luke writers do not. So from chapter 13 to chapter 17, all of this happened. Uh, either in the upper room or between the upper room and going into the garden. So we've got four, uh, was my math is right, five full chapters of Jesus' teaching and exhortation and telling them what is to come. And now he gives us some other helpful information to kind of set the tone for where we're going to be this morning. So picking up in John 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, everything we saw in the last few chapters... He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. Remember, they're, they're in Jerusalem proper. That was the only place where it was lawful to hold the Passover. And so they go out of the gate. They go down into the valley, the brook Kidron. They go back up into the, or at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And uh, this is where they are, where there was a garden. And uh, we know this is the Garden of Gethsemane from the other synoptics. John knows this. He doesn't have to include those details. Uh, because he's writing after we have Mar uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But here's the important detail. Which he and his disciples entered. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. This is important. We talked about this before, that Jesus went into the regular practice and discipline of going away and praying getting away from the chaos and the crowds and being alone with the Father, and he trained the disciples in this. Judas had been there many times. He knew where Jesus would go. So Judas, knowing Jesus' MO, knowing what he would do next, he goes off. Think about the, the timing here. Judas left during the meal. Jesus says, what you have to do, go and do it quickly. He goes off before the cup is given, so he sticks the, the betrayal bread in the bowl, the, the, the cup. And then the last thing Jesus does, it says, this is the blood of the new covenant in my blood. Judas is not present for that. Why? Because he's off procuring a band of soldiers. This band of soldiers, it's a, it's a, a, a word for a portion of the Roman legion. And so he is off, not just coordinating with the rulers of the synagogue, but also the Roman authorities. He not only is, is uh, handing Jesus over for money, he's orchestrating it. 
He is going with willful intent. He is procuring the soldiers. He wants to make sure this happened, and we'll see some of those, those details. So not only does he bring the Roman guard in, but he brings in some of the officers from the chief priests. Now, if you remember our time in Mark, the chief priests were from uh, typically the Levites, chief priests. And so the officers of the Levites, these are the temple guards. So he gets the Roman guards, the temple guards, and brings in the elders and the scribes, as, as Mark tells us, with the Pharisees. So now you've got the who's who of the authority in Rome and among the Jews. And Judas is here bringing all of this together. And they went with lanterns and torches and weapons. It's like they're going for Frankenstein. This is, this is the, this, the scene here. The villagers have their, their pitchforks, they're upset, and they're, they're going to overthrow this monster. So that's, that's the scene. If you want to read the rest of this, uh, please do. Because John brings in an amazing interchange of Jesus' fearlessness. His, his bold stand before his accusers, before his betrayer, and before those who would arrest him. Um, all so that he may drink this cup. This is not a favorable cup, the cup of God's wrath. He knows what he's going to do. Uh, so yeah, read the rest of John 18 on your own, but let's jump back into Mark. So now we've got the, the uh, timing here. And immediately when he was still speaking, Judas came. So Jesus is still talking to the three. And then Judas comes in the middle of this. He knows where to find Jesus. Judas, listed here as one of the 12, make a mental note of that. And with him a crowd with swords and clubs. Now we know who the crowd is. This crowd under the authority of the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. This is, this is representative of the synagogue. These are all of the Jewish leaders. They've all come together against Jesus. And so there's this full conspiracy with the synagogue and the Roman authorities. This wicked cohort of Jews and Gentiles. The, the pagans and the religious. And this is all happening after midnight in the cover of darkness. I want you to understand how scandalous and extreme this is. They are armed to the teeth. This is like a joint task force. The, a the ATF, the FBI, the police all show up for a teacher. We don't often think about that. This is not an insurrectionist. He is not raising an, an, an army against Rome. He is not even calling to overthrow the synagogue. He is simply teaching the word of God. And they pull out all the stops for him. Notice Mark's transition from verse 43 to verse 44. Mark is driving this point home. Judas, who's one of the 12 in verse 43, is now the betrayer. In verse 44, this is emphasizing his treachery. One of the 12, one of Jesus' closest, he is the betrayer. He's already got paid at this point, but he not only wants to, wants to organize it, but see it through. Notice, he plans this well. Now the betrayer had given them a sign. He had arranged this ahead of time. He's saying, the one I, uh, I will kiss is the man. Not just, hey, that's him. You do what you want. Notice he gives them directions as well. That's the one. 
seize him and lead him away under guard. Judas wants to make sure Jesus doesn't get away. Do not feel bad for Judas. He is the son of perdition for a reason. He not only orchestrates this, he not only plans it and directs it, but he makes sure Jesus won't get away. This is the depth of what it means when you are taken over by Satan and you hate Jesus with every fiber of your being. And what is worse, he betrays him with a kiss. Now for us, uh, we have weakened the idea of a kiss. So it is something that is thrown around so much. We are so used to it. Uh, we are so used to uh, lifetime movies and romance novels and, and, and all these things. It does not mean now what it meant then. So if you don't realize this, the idea of even romance and, and romantic kisses did not even, it wasn't even on the scene until the late medieval period. So until the Romantic writers started writing about these, these things, um, the kiss was very symbolic, especially in, in, in Eastern cultures. It was, it was a sign of intimacy, and not in romantic intimacy, but relational intimacy. You, you kissed on the, on the forehead, on the cheek, even on the lips, those you loved. And there was a, um, the, the word used here in the Greek is it's phileo, it's, it's the brotherly love. It's the same word for love and for kiss. So the one that, that, that I love, I'm giving him the kiss of love, the, the, the brotherly kiss. I'm giving him affection. This just adds insult to the injury. And so, and if you, if you come from uh, an Eastern background or from Latin cultures, kisses are, are still a sign of, of, of greeting, a, a sign of affection. And um, so we, in, in our modern minds, kind of pervert these, these things. This was a deep solemn sign that had, that had significance from a teacher, or excuse me, from a student to a teacher. And so this is the sign that he chooses, the one who I show my love for in a kiss, arrest him, make sure he doesn't get away. But then it escalates. Verse 45, and when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The exclamation is right here. Rabbi! We know this is an intense kiss because the Greek is intensified. It's not just phileo, it's katafileo. It's, it, it's, it's an intensified kiss. He's either really excited or he's really nervous, but he makes a big scene here. He comes up and, and, and yells, Rabbi, it's you, and grabs him and embraces him. There is drama built into this text. His treachery is so heinous. It makes me think of another example in Scripture. Uh, if you can turn to 2 Samuel, do that. But it will also be on the screen. There's a great parallel in 2 Samuel. And uh, if you're familiar with the life of David... Joab is one of, his, one of his most trusted mighty men. He's his right-hand man, uh, but there's a bit of a power struggle. Joab isn't, isn't always in David's good graces. And David blesses another man, Amasa, above him. Look how Joab treats him. This is 2 Samuel 20, 9 and 10. 
Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. There is such thing as a manly kiss. He takes him by the beard <laughs> to kiss him. I'm not saying you try it, but it does exist. <laughs> but Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. This is the type of kiss. Judas did not stab him in the stomach. He did not gut him, but he might as well have. It was the same thing. My brother, is it well with you? Not disclosing the sword that is in your belt. And he gives Jesus the Fredo kiss of death as he throws him out of the rowboat. And so I want, a couple Godfather fans got that. Um, but I want us to think about this. Mark includes these details, one of the 12, Rabbi, to drive home something we all know. The greatest pain we ever experience is from those we love the most. Those who are far from us, we don't care as much as those who we let in. Those who are close to us, those who know us, those who eat with us, those who walk with us and travel with us, they're the ones who when we let our guard down and they disappoint us and they, they hurt us and they turn their backs on us, there is no greater pain. This is why when you get hurt in the church, there is no pain like it. Because in the church, every time a sinner, and you have never looked in the eyes of someone who's not a sinner, but we forget that they're sinners because they have smiles on all the time, but every time you look in the face of a sinner who betrays you or, talk behind, or talks behind your, your, your back or, or says something so hurtful to you, The fact that you love them as a brother or a sister and let them in, it makes the pain so much worse. And so, you know, as we're going through a membership process, one of the questions we always ask is, tell us about your, your church background. Are there any church hurts or concerns that we need to be aware of? And probably 70 to 80% of the time there is. Most people, if you're not one of those people, praise the Lord. But most people know what it's like to be burned by the church or people in the church because you love them. You gave, your, you gave yourself up for them. Mark brings this home to bring it to our attention that, yes, there is pain. When you actually care for people, it might cost you something. It might hurt. But for those of you who are resisting actually getting to know people, there is no greater joy than you will find in the body of Christ. There is no greater encouragement than when someone loves you, truly loves you, and truly cares for you, and truly does stand by you. That, hopefully, should not be the exception but the rule. And any harm that we take on, we take it on in the name of Christ. We should have no regrets for loving someone or caring for someone, regardless of how they respond or treat us. But we got to be careful to make sure that those who let us in and those who trust us and those who, 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 who love us, especially the bride of Christ, that we care for them. 
that we, we, we guard them and we guard one another in that. This is the most extreme example in all of Scripture and in all of history. There's a, a great lesson for us in that. And many of us bear the scars. But like Jesus, if you bear the scars of being hurt for his name, it is worth it. Because he bore these scars and was hurt for Judas for you. Amen. So drama continues. And they laid hands on him and seized him. This is the second of four times this word seize is used. It is, a, it is to forcibly arrest. The drama is built in here. Okay. And I guess that was part of the drama. Um, there's no due process here. Pastors in China and Canada are being treated like this right now. In the cover of, of, of darkness, with guns drawn, coming in and seizing and arresting them for preaching, for gathering. There is nothing new under the sun, and it will only get worse. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it will only get worse. So the drama escalates, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. What is going on? All right. Let's see if that works. Um, struck him and cut off his ear. So to add details here, to bring all of the, the Gospels together, John tells us it was Peter who struck him there. Of course it was. Luke tells us that uh, Jesus takes the ear and puts it back on. David Blaine, eat your heart out. Uh, so there's, 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 there's a lot in the other, in the other Gospels, but... Is that the point? Is that what we should take away? Why did he cut his ear off? Why was it only one, one ear? How did Jesus put it back on? Why don't we have their responses? Those are all the questions that go on in our, in our human minds. We want to know all of the juicy details, but is that really the point? The, re, the, the point is in Jesus' response in Matthew 26. So turn back a few pages to Matthew 26. And I want to lean in here for another time of application. Matthew 26, I'm going to pick up in verse 52. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now, Jesus is saying, I get your, your desire to fight, but the fight's a little bit different than what you think. And two, it's a nice gesture, but do you forget who you're standing next to? Look at the next verse. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? You don't want to see 12 legions of angels. Jesus like, if this was that kind of fight, I would bring down fire from heaven and destroy them all. Put your sword back. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? All of this is for the word of God to be fulfilled. They are still thinking revolutionary uh, or to, to, to overthrow Rome and to come in and fight. His kingdom's going to be right now. It's not that type of kingdom. 
There's always our temptation to, to see an earthly kingdom be built. I don't have that type of kingdom. If you want to see my kingdom, I will bring angels with flaming swords and you will see my kingdom. But I'm doing something different here. The scriptures must be fulfilled. And so I think this, there's an important point here. It brought to mind one of my favorite quotes from, from Charles Spurgeon. So he talks about the preachers of his day. Um, and there are many in our day as well who make careers on defending the um, legitimacy or authority of Scripture. And that's a good thing. But if, if all of your, your, your time is spent um, refuting other people and arguing with, with, with other people, and you're not actually proclaiming the truth that, that, that you're defending, so he talks about the, the power here, and he uses similar language. So the, the, the quote will be up on the screen. He says, the word of God can take care of itself and will do so if we preach it and cease defending it. Um, So just kind of a a side note. A lot of you, and I get asked about this a lot, so I may just say it broadly. A lot of you were um, appalled, as you should be, and surprised when Ravi Zacharias fell the way he did. But if you've been around me for some time, I I was not a big fan of Ravi Zacharias. Why? Because he almost never preached the gospel. He would spend a lot of time defending it, showing how smart he was. But rarely would he get to the cross. Rarely would he call for repentance. Rarely would he quote scripture. This is why Spurgeon continued. And Spurgeon still is the impact that he has this day. Why? Because he's not pointing to himself and his own ability. Because he, he knew the word of God and he saw it as what? A lion. See you that lion? They have caged him for his, his, his preservation. They have shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. Imagine how ridiculous that is. We're going to protect the lion. See how a band of armed men have gathered together to protect the lion. What a clatter they make with their swords and spears. I can just imagine Peter clattering with his, with his swords. These mighty men are intent upon defending a lion. Oh, fools and slow of heart, open that door. Let the Lord of the forest come, bef- come forth free. Who will dare encounter him? What does he want with your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all its lion-like majesty, and it will soon clear its way and ease itself of its adversaries. Do you see the word of God like that? So I want to kind of dig a little bit deeper here. I want to ask a couple questions. Does that mean that there's no fight for the believer at all? Because some of you really want to fight. Some of you love a good fight, like, you know, let me add them, little mighty mouses that, that just want, want to take on everybody. It's not that kind of fight. Some of you don't want to fight at all. Some of you don't want to fight physically. You don't want to fight spiritually. You will run from every fight. Spurgeon is not saying here that there's not a fight. But it's not the fight that we fight in our own strength. So I want to I talk about this tension a little bit because our fight is, is unique. What do we do when we are threatened in our faith? What do we do when we are challenged? There is a difference between apologetics, defending the faith, giving hope for what, is, for, for what we have in us with gentleness and respect, versus what Peter did, thinking he must defend Jesus by attacking and assailing Jesus' enemies. If Jesus wanted to destroy those people, he would. He doesn't need you to attack them with arguments and insults. 
Is there a fight? Absolutely. But what type of fight? Paul tells us we, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Paul tells us put on the whole armor of God. He's calling us soldiers. There is a fight without question. Arm yourself for battle, but not in that way. We're, we're not Islam. Islam is the religion of the sword. We are not trying to bully and threaten people into conversion. We have the, the only offensive weapon that matters, the sword of the Spirit. Notice what Jesus says in John 18, 36. Going a little bit further in that chapter that we looked at before. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Okay, so if Jesus has an otherworldly kingdom, what type of fight are we, his servants, engaged in? Look at 2 Corinthians 10. We have something more powerful than Jesus' little sword or any insults we can hurl at people. 2 Corinthians 10, picking up in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Christian, did you know that when you put your faith in Christ, you are enlisting in his army? You are called to war. This is not the happy-go-lucky, trust in Jesus, everything's going to go well, Christianity, that you are sold, and it's a lie. You are called into war. We are not waging war according to the flesh, but it's not fighting the way you're used to fighting. We must learn to fight a different way. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy this is war language. We can do that. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ. How do we fight? With our minds and with the word of God. Destroying falsehood and error. Taking it captive. And in a way that makes sense to no one else, like Peter says, with gentleness and respect. And in the church, verse 6, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So don't think that Jesus can't fight in his own, that you have to fight on his behalf. But also don't think that you don't have to fight. They hated him, they will hate you. But your confidence should not be in the ability to win an argument or to win a fist fight. but to take thoughts captive unto Christ. To train your body and your mind to wield the sword of the Spirit. That is our true power. That is divine power. And it doesn't come from us. So that we have no reason to boast. This is why our battle is different than Peter. This is why Jesus told him to put his sword away. All right, enough on that. Let's continue. Verse 48, and Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Think about it. This is, again, we mentioned this early, but Jesus, Jesus tells them how crazy this is. Am I a robber? Am I a murderer? You got, you got clubs and swords? 
I don't even have a house, and you came to me armed to the teeth. This is how threatening Jesus is. And his response puts them to shame. And it is in such contrast to them because here they are seething at the teeth. Their, 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 their mouth is watering. And Judas is the ringleader. And Jesus challenged them on the, on the basis of, him even, of them even approaching him. But don't be fooled, brothers and sisters. Do not be lulled to sleep. The world will pull out all the stops to silence the word of God, to silence Christ, to minimize him. And they are desperate to fight back and lash out whenever their systems are threatened. We have seen this all throughout history, and we are seeing it more and more today. Don't believe me? Tell the average person in the world that marriage is between a man and a woman. Tell the average person in the world there are two genders. Tell the average person in the world that Jesus is the only way to salvation, the, only, the, 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 the way, the truth, and the life. Everyone else will go to hell apart from him, and I'm sure they'll love you very much. As we said last week, if you have never been afraid to share the gospel, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you may not understand the gospel as a call to make the world miserable, aware of their misery and their sin and their hopelessness without Christ. If you do that, they will treat you the way they treated Jesus. But if you do that, you have a share with Jesus and not the world. Amen. Verse 49. He continues, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. We, we went through this, this rhythm. He would sleep in Bethany and go in, and teach uh, in the temple in broad daylight. Day after day, hour upon hour, all throughout the Passover week. But they do what they do in the cover of darkness. They want nothing to do with his light or even the light of day. Because they were so committed to people pleasing that they didn't want to face the, the, the scrutiny of the pilgrims who came into Jerusalem to worship. So they did it under cloud of darkness where they could control the circumstances. And Jesus does it all. Why? But let the scriptures be fulfilled. I know this is wrong. I know you were cowards. And I know you were doing this under false pretenses, but I am doing this for the word of God. He states this many times. And in his humanity, Jesus submits to the word of God. He is the word made flesh so he is in perfect agreement with everything that it promises and prophesies. So let us never lose sight of God's sovereign plan and God's sovereign word. And so I want us to think about here. Jesus stood before his enemies, ready to kill him, knowing he was going to the cross. And he says, I do it so the scriptures may be fulfilled. What do we trust in? What will we put our lives on the line for? Most would do it for their children. Most would do it for their spouse. Maybe you'd do it something, for something you're really passionate for. Many have laid down their life for their country. Many have laid down their lives stupidly for a thrill. Or maybe you value nothing more than your own life and your own comfort, and you would not put your life down for anything. But look at the contrast here. 
Jesus surrendered his life that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He so much submitted himself in obedience to the Father that he would die for the word of God. The promises of God were worth dying for. How should we view the word of God? Can we put our trust in what God tells us in his word? Because Jesus did. Jesus gave up his life for the word of God. Jesus knew the promises of his father were faithful. How could we not submit to the word? When Jesus submitted to it unto death for us. How could we not submit to the word when Jesus submitted to it unto death for us? There are so many of you, and I love you. I know you love the Lord, and I know you, you respect his word, but you do wrestle against those parts that make you uncomfortable, that, 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 that challenge what you want to be doing right now. Will you submit the way Jesus did to the word of God? Will you inherit with him the blessed communion with the Father that he had on earth? Or will you pick and choose a la carte what you want? And so what does it get him? What does this obedience to the scriptures get? The formula that many of us have been told or maybe we think in our heads, if I do what God wants me to do, everything will go right with me and people will love me, right? What does it get Jesus? And they all left him and fled. What was his reward among men standing there by himself? All left him and fled. Remember the last couple weeks, the all who drank with him, the all who said they would die with him, the all who said they would never leave him, they would not desert him no matter what, now they all leave. Jesus is standing by himself, facing the darkest hour of his life, humanly speaking, all alone. Jesus alone on earth, however, he was not alone. His father in heaven was with him, but there was not another human soul to comfort him or walk alongside him. This is the drama of the passage. This is the crescendo of the, the tension here. All of this happens and Jesus is by himself. We'll get to that more in a moment. But there's someone else there watching. Jesus isn't quite by himself. Um, this is the only time these two verses, verse 51 and 52, are included in, in any of the Gospels. It's extremely unique, and there are no shortage of speculations as to what is going on here and um, why it is included. I will tell you what most scholars think is going on here, um, and I will tell you what I think it is included. Historically speaking, uh, many scholars, most people accept that this is Mark, John Mark, this young boy. Uh, there's, there's evidence that his house in Acts 12 is where the disciples often met. There was a large upper room where they, they taught and held church services. Um, so the idea is that if this is young John Mark's house and Jesus is meeting upstairs with the disciples, um, he's sleeping downstairs. And so he, he hears when they, they leave. We know he was sleeping 
because the young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth on. This is a very uh, specific Greek word that is either for uh, a resurrection shawl or bed linen. So he runs out naked with a sheet on. This is, um, no one plans to go out that way, hopefully. <laughs> so he's, 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 he's woken up, and this, this young man, we don't know how, how old he is. He, he's older than, than a child, um, but still probably a young teenager. Um, and the, the language used here in, in, in the Greek is just, it's interesting. The young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth. Um, it is literally around his naked body. So the, the author thought it was important to mention that this young man is here with, uh, with nothing but his naked body. And, same word, but he left, uh, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away in his naked body. Um, I don't know why that had to be mentioned twice. Don't ask me. Um, but, like the rest of the disciples, he was there, he, he's curious, and he split like the rest of them. If you look at your outlines, that was the only S word I could think of. So, um, he, he you're, at least someone's looking at the outline. Um, so he's, he, he's split like the rest of the, the, the disciples. And you are not going to catch a scared naked boy. And parents, if you've ever tried, it is not going to happen. He is out of there. And neither do you really want to, um, especially if it's not your boy. <laughs> so he's gone running off naked into the night. Fun fact, this is the first ever recorded streaking in, in recorded history. It's true. Um, and so that's who we think it is. Um, why is this included? We don't know for sure. Uh, <laughs> was, some of you are going to be laughing about that all day. Um, why was, or excuse me, was it really Mark? We don't know, but it's not the point. Here's what I think the point is, though. Why is this included here? Maybe Mark to put some kind of connection to himself in his uh, account but what I think it does is it heightens the shame of Jesus' followers. The point is, is that we all, like all the disciples, would have run away. That no one can stand. And if you try to stand on your own strength or think you can, you can hide away and not be associated with Jesus, you will be exposed and naked like this young man. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no chance possible that any of us would stand. And all will be left naked and exposed. Since the fall, it is never a good thing to be naked. All of us who've ever had those, those weird dreams, like, why am I naked right now? Uh, it is never a good thing. But nakedness is a reminder of, uh, of shame and being exposed by your own sin making you feel like everyone is looking at you, like everyone is judging you, like I shouldn't be here right now, I need to put some clothes on, like Adam and Eve, and I need to go hide. This is showing us that when the world comes after you, if you are not bold, if you are not confident in your faith, you will be exposed. You will, you will be like this scared, naked young man. And this is another warning that we've seen again and again about self-confidence. This young man was not prepared for what he was about to face. If you're going to face an army, don't go out in a bed sheet. That's, that's the other lesson here. <laughs> but what we find ourselves in the end of this passage is that even the curious little kid is gone. No one is here for Jesus. He is completely alone. So here's where I want to land in our last few minutes, uh, our application 
So we kind of made our path through the text, but I want to lean in here. And I want us to lean in first on the, the, the first sense of alone, meaning by yourself. This text makes it abundantly clear that no one can stand with Christ. In the garden, he stood alone. In his trial, he stood alone. In his torture, in his mocking, he stood alone. In his crucifixion, he stood alone. No one did or could stand with him. In this, he has no peers, no parallels, no one like him. He must stand alone because he is the unparalleled sacrifice and the unparalleled representative. This text naturally draws us to Christ because everything else has been stripped away. Any other hope or of, of comfort or solace from human contact is gone. In order to be the new Adam of a new covenant, he must first begin in a garden alone with the Father. Humanity began in a garden, one man in God. New humanity in the new covenant must and does begin in a garden, one man alone with God. So before we go on any more about Christ, this hopefully should draw us to ourselves, and I want a little bit of self-examination for us here. This should cause us to look at ourselves. Do we really think we're that different than the disciples? Do we have that much confidence in our own abilities, in our own, in our own boldness, apart from the Spirit of God? Not just in bravery, because unless you're stupid, you're not going to face off against a SWAT team by yourself. So in that we understand. They're not going to, um, I guess Peter tried. Maybe Peter is stupid. Um, he was before the Holy Spirit. But even deeper than that, in your sin, can you stand with Christ? We do not deserve to stand with him. Every sin we commit is an is is abominable in the sight of God. It is an affront to his holiness, and we cannot stand with him. In this, he stands alone. This is our problem, especially today. Maybe many of you in this room, certainly many people you talk to, we don't understand how bad we are. We don't understand how wicked we are. We don't understand how holy Christ is. No one can stand with him without spot or blemish. There is not one fraction, one infinitesimal decimal point of error in him. We forget how wicked we really are, how unworthy we are. And I think we often forget that when we're sharing the gospel and we're talking to people. We don't remember how, how dead dead is and how holy God is. If you forgot, Paul in Romans 3, quoting Psalm 14, says, No one is righteous. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. We are all like those disciples in our sin. No one. But, but, no one. You, you, you have heard this. But God knows me. Or, but I've done these good things. 
it doesn't matter. You've not done good in the eyes of God unless you've done it in faith in Jesus Christ. Goes a step further. We've been spending a lot of time in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned everyone to his own way. Jesus said a couple weeks ago, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. We've all turned. Even with the sheep that flee from the shepherd, the rest of that verse says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is what he is getting ready to do for scattered sheep. For wicked sheep. Who if it were not by his grace would be in league with Judas. Would be right there with a club and a torch in their hands. If we think we can stand on our own righteousness, we will be exposed like this naked young boy. And when we read the scriptures like Christ reads the scriptures, we can't avoid it. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4. If you can't get there quickly, it'll be on the screen. Hebrews chapter 4. Notice the parallels here. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Peter pulled out an actual sword. You know what's sharper and more effective than Peter's sword? The word of God. This two-edged sword pierces the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It gets to your thoughts, to your heart, to your body. It exposes you, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom, to whom we must give an account. The same scriptures that Jesus kept expose us. The same scriptures that Jesus died for shows us that we are sinners in need of him. Those same scriptures are our comfort in him. And this is where I want to transition. To the second use, our sense of alone. Here's where we stop looking at ourselves and start looking at Christ. I hope you do read the scriptures. One more thought on that. In Hebrews 4, I hope when you read the scriptures and you come across something that is you, you are convicted to the core and you cry out and repent, believer or unbeliever. The rest of our lives is a rhythm of repentance. If you don't, you will be naked and exposed and completely alone. But we don't, the gospel is good news. So we don't just stay on the bad news. Let's transition now to the good news. Here's where we look to Christ alone, as in him only. Praise God that the bad news leads us to good news. Praise God for God's grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. Amen. We look to Christ alone. We put our faith in the word made flesh. Who stood firmly on the word of God in his darkest hour? Who approached, sh who approached shame and the scorn of the cross, deserted by all his disciples. And how did he do it? In joy. He approached the cross with joy. We don't approach the dentist with joy. He approached the cross with joy. Why? Because he was bringing his bride home. It was worth it. Because his beloved would be united. And this bride is also a family. 
He deserves all glory, but he approached the cross with joy to bring many more sons to glory. These scriptures must be fulfilled so that we could sit here and say amen to those words. Who else could we trust but Christ alone? Who else could we look to but Christ alone? What other man could take the cross as joy? What other man could take the wrath of God? Only a man who could fully bear the wrath of God as God. What man could keep the law perfectly? What man could stand under ridicule and persecution? That's why we put our faith in Christ alone. Where else could we turn? Who else could we trust? We are those sheep. Who else could bear our iniquity? So I want to encourage you in this, in this final push. Stay with me here. Because he died first, because he rose first, we have a guarantee that we will rise with him. This is what Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. Because of God's great, rich love and mercy, this wondrous gift of salvation, that he would die for our sins, that he would rise again, that we, united with him in faith, would rise with him. And these wandering sheep who are scattered and fearful and go their own way will be brought home by their shepherd who has redeemed them with his only blood. Our faith is in Christ, his person and his work, fully God, fully man, truly in every sense like us, yet one with the Father, perfectly working on our behalf. Our faith is in that Christ. Our hope is in that Christ, the anchor of our soul who is holding us to himself until he brings us home in glory. Our joy is in Christ because he's our savior. He has set us free. He has given us life. He has given us all things, the spiritual riches in him that will not pass away. Our identity is in Christ because he has made us a new creation. He has made us new humanity, true humanity that partakes in the divine nature by becoming man, the son of God made of sons of God. And by being left alone and suffering alone, he guarantees that we will never be left alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we never lose the wonder and the, the gratefulness of being hidden in Christ alone, of being covered by his blood, of being bought by his very life, of being imputed with his righteousness, of being raised to new life, of being secured by his spirit, being given citizenship in his kingdom, reigning with him in glory forever as his beloved bride. And may we never lose that. May we never think too highly of ourselves. May we never think too low of your holiness. May we humbly and graciously call out 
and rest in your mercy. And if there is anyone here this morning who is still resting in themselves, who is still, like Peter, thinking they can fight their way into God's graces, may they fall on their face and repent. May they be exposed as naked and helpless like this young man so that they can fall before the throne of grace and forgiveness. May we, your people, take heart, take courage in this world that hated you and will hate us, but that we may stand in the name of Jesus Christ because he stood before us and on our behalf. We may proclaim his name, sing his name, preach his name, rest in his name, have hope in his name, and be ready to share with the world that hope that is within us. May your spirit equip us to fight spiritual battles. The helmet and the breastplate and the sword and the belt and the shoes. But not against flesh and blood. And may we do it with gentleness and respect that we may win many for the name of Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.